Daniel's seeing the effects of the covenant being broken, and he's recognizing that as a result of all of those things, yes, there will be pain. There will be misery. There will be sorrow. But in through all of that, there will still be God. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and we're in our current series in the book of Daniel, where we're asking, how can God's people not only survive, but thrive in Babylon? For resources and information about this teaching series, or to learn about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. The journey we have been on through this book of Daniel has been an incredible journey, hasn't it? We have been learning heaps and heaps of amazing things about this book that uh, we've, I think, I, I know I felt pretty familiar with ahead of time, but it turns out I wasn't familiar with this book at all. There is incredible things going on behind the scenes of this particular book that just are, uh, well, fascinating. Last week, as we turned the corner from the, the narrative portion of Daniel, the first six chapters, so chapters seven and eight, we took a journey in an incredible way into these two visions. Daniel chapter 7 covered all of these, these beasts coming up out of the water. Daniel chapter 8 covered this interaction between this ram and this goat. And it was all during this time of King Belshazzar. And Daniel saw these visions and he saw how all of these, uh, th these countries were going to come and how they're going to rise and fall in this crazy succession of order of things. He saw how the Medes and Persians were going to take over the Babylonians. He saw how the Greeks were going to take over them and how the Romans were going to take over them and ultimately towards this amazing kingdom of God coming to fruition. But now chapter 9 takes a new corner. This is now as King Darius has taken over. He is that Mede, he is that Persian who has overthrown the Babylonian government. This is the year where uh, Daniel, as one of the, the members of society there, was instructed to not actually pray to God, but was instructed to pray to Darius. The satraps there all led this charge to convict uh, Daniel of this, and they tricked him, got him into the lion's den. Same years. But what I think fascinates me, again, fascinates me, is at the end of chapter 7, as Daniel finishes talking about this particular dream, he says this in 728. My thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. Then at the end of chapter 8, as he was given the whole meaning and experience behind what that vision of the, the goats and the ram came about with, he says, I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. You see, I get in my mind how Daniel felt all this trouble. As King Belshazzar has uh, now lost his throne, Darius has taken over, and all of this unrest was happening within this nation still. And Daniel then opens up in chapter 9 with these words. So if you have your Bibles open, Daniel chapter 9 is where we're going to land for a moment. Starting in verse 1. So again, Daniel's troubled. He's unsure of what's going on all around him. In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, a descendant of Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Pause there for a moment. Here we have this troubled Daniel. 
Daniel's starting now to see how all of these visions that he's had are coming to see the light of day. He's been troubled by the coming future of seeing how all of these interactions are going to be a, just a troubling experience. And so what does Daniel do? What is Daniel's first instinct in this very moment? He does what he's always done. He leans on the Lord. He turns to God's word. And in this very moment, he leans into the book of Jeremiah. Now, again, this is, in my mind, super fascinating because Jeremiah is a prophet of the same time frame. He's writing these very words as Ezekiel, sorry, as Daniel, this chapter that we're reading, is playing out. Jeremiah is one of the prophets of the Old Testament that prophesied over the nation of Israel that God was extremely upset. God was getting rather tired with their antics. There was this... uh, disobedience that was just rampant among this particular nation. And God's basically telling them, there's this judgment coming. They'd be taken to a distant land. They'd live out their punishment. So Daniel, sorry, Jeremiah 25 is where Daniel is suspectedly reading. Daniel, oh, sorry, I keep on saying Daniel and Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25. This is, again, what we think Daniel turns to as he's reflecting on scripture through all this trouble. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, which is an interesting note, and I will bring them against this land of Jerusalem and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Again, this is Daniel reading this. He's just been told all of these things are going to happen. This is a troubling time. Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of the mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. All that to say there is more trouble coming. This is the whole land, sorry, this whole land will become a ruin and a waste and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jeremiah wrote this this chapter long ahead of these Israelites being exiled. Long before they they knew that they were going to be exiled, they knew that these things were to come. Jeremiah told them this will happen. This event will come. And so the nation of Israel, they knew these things were to come, yet they didn't turn from their wicked ways. They were told that a punishment was a coming, but they didn't change their antics. So I want to circle farther back into the book of Deuteronomy. This is where uh, Moses was receiving all of the instruction from God Almighty, where uh, a couple chapters prior, Moses had just received the Ten Commandments and a whole variety of other commandments with how the Israelites were supposed to live in this life. And God says at Deuteronomy 28 verse 1, He says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments I command you today, the Lord your God will set set you high above the nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come upon you and will overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Following verses, God outlines how all of these blessings will look and how all of this will happen. But it takes another corner, takes another turn at 28 verse 15. It looks at the other side of the coin. God says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses will come and overtake you. 
And from there, it outlines for the next number of chapters just exactly how those curses, how those punishments will actually take effect. And he actually talks about how they're going to be drawn into a distant land, how they will serve other kings, how they will serve other gods of gold and silver and wood. He talks about how the... I'm just looking at this one. I've got this thing circled here about dead bodies being, sh- being food for the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. This punishment doesn't sound great, does it? And this is what the Israelites were told long ahead of their exile, long ahead of their departure. They were told, if you don't obey my voice, you will face consequences. So as we now know, as we've been tracking through the Old Testament, we've been in the Old Testament for a few, for a few months here. And we're now seeing a, a pretty firm picture of how the Israelites, well, they just did not do what they were commanded to do. They did not obey God's voice. They did not obey his commands. They, they chose to go about life on their own, and they ignored all the blessings that God would have for them. And this, they did this repeatedly over and over again. And then finally, God's like, I, I, I've had enough. He sent him off into exile in 605 BC, where the book of Daniel then begins. And they were told to Jeremiah how long this exile would last. And they've been exiled now in this land of Babylon, that uh, they will be there for 70 years. And a light goes off in Daniel's mind as he's thinking about this. He knows that he's been there for roughly 65 years. He's, he arrived there as a mid-teenager thereabouts. We know that he's roughly about 80 years old. It's the year 539 B.C. And you wrap all this math together, and you come out to the point that Daniel knows that there's only a few years left in this exile. He's getting the sense that there's, there's something coming. There's a change of front. But as, but as he's writing all this, as he's reflecting on these visions, there's something else that I think is going on in his mind. There's something else that he knows that in a few years from there, they're going to be able to rebuild their city. They're going to be able to rebuild their temple. They're going to be able to rebuild their lives. But first, before we travel that direction, I want to see how Daniel responds to his troubled heart. Going back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleased for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made a confession, saying, Daniel takes this posture of prayer. He takes this posture of mourning and of penitence. He covers himself with sackcloth and ashes, and he recognizes that as a nation, nor himself, have they confessed their sins to the Lord Almighty. They've been living in this punishment now for all of these years, and they've never taken the time to communicate back to the Lord how sorrowful they are. So Daniel takes this posture on behalf of the nation and records for us this amazing prayer that I believe has in it these three confessional statements. The first being Daniel confesses the nation's need for God. Read that first three again as we look at how Daniel confesses the nation's need for God. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him in prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made my confession. Daniel's first inclination here in this very moment is to turn his face towards the Lord. It's the same pattern that we've seen in Daniel all along through chapters 1 through 6. In chapter 1, we see Daniel remaining committed to the ways of his God as he stood there at that meal and said, I'm not eating all that meat. Serve me the veggies, he said. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel joined with his friends along with prayer. 
seeking the meaning of the king's dream, and it was revealed to them. In chapter 5, Daniel attributes the interpretation of the second dream not to himself, but to the Lord Almighty. Then in chapter 6, Daniel heard about Darius' edict, about how they're to pray only to himself and to no other god. And Daniel, what does he do? He goes to his upper room, as he has always done, opens his window towards Jerusalem, and prays to God. You see, as I'm reading all of this, as I'm reflecting all of this, I'm seeing how Daniel has had all his priorities in the right order. He knew where God stood in his life. He not only knew that God was number one in his life, he lived it, he breathed it, and he modeled it, and he wrote it down for you and I to learn from it. And so again, as I've been thinking about this, the series that we've been in called Thriving in Babylon, you must see that if, if God is not first in your life, if God is not taking precedence and priority in all of the things in life, thriving in Babylon is going to be impossible. And I think that's what Daniel's discovering here too. He sees that our families and our relationships here on earth, well, they need to kind of be put in second place, in first place to God. Our careers, our schooling, and everything else need to fall third, fourth, and fifth because God is our priority. So Daniel was modeling this very priority structure for us when this moment arrived. He didn't run to the hills in panic. He didn't gather all of his buddies around to storm the city center and make a huge riot and a huge storm about how they had to fight for their rights. He did what he always did. He turned his face towards the Lord. And he recognized that whatever would follow would be a gift from God above. Whatever strength, whatever knowledge, whatever courage, anything else was only going to come from God the Father. And he did so out of a posture of lament. He did so out of a grievous, heavy heart because his nation hadn't put God first. He recognized that they've been thinking about themselves all along. He recognized that they've been placing themselves at the center of their lives as opposed to God. And so Daniel opens this moment up in a moment of adoration recognizing that God is first in his life, recognizing that God needs to be first in the lives of this nation. He opens up in halfway through uh, verse four there. He says, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands. He places God right where he needs to be as that great and awesome God. He doesn't lift up himself. He's not giving himself any honor, not giving himself any kind of praise, but he says, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And as he says that, he leads into his second confession. Daniel confesses the nation's sinfulness in verse 5. He writes, We have sinned and we've done wrong. We've acted wickedly and we've rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and our rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all people over the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As that at this day, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of those in Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery they have committed against you. Flash back with me here to 605 B.C., Something else fascinating is going on in the background here. The first exiles in 605 are being carried off into Babylon. Do you remember how many exiles there were in that first group? 10,000 young men. 
10,000 of the brightest, most sharpest, most intelligent, best-looking men of Israel, of Judah, were taken off by the Babylonians. And that's where Daniel and his three buddies were. But there's another individual in this particular group who we know the name of. He writes in another incredible book of the Bible that talks about God's judgment that is coming towards this country. And his name is Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one of these captives who goes as part of the captives that is sent off into Babylon. He's an Old Testament priest who writes this incredible book and does incredible things. It's, it's almost comical the things that God has asked him to do to show the nation of Israel just, in fact, how lost they were. And all of these things, all of these antics, Ezekiel is doing from the Judean refugee camp right outside of Babylon, this very same area that Daniel is serving the king from. And Ezekiel, he writes his book, Ezekiel um, at verse chapter 14. Now, what I'm going to read is not necessarily the context of what I want to share, but it's some of the names that Ezekiel shares. Ezekiel's writing about how the Jerusalem will not be spared, that there's no help necessarily coming for Jerusalem itself. But he says within this, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but own their own lives by the righteousness, declares the Lord. Again, I don't necessarily want to talk about all the background that's going on with Ezekiel right in this moment, but he mentions these three characters. He mentions Noah, Daniel, and Job. Well, how does, how does he know Noah? Well, Ezekiel knows Noah because of the context of the flood that's recorded in Genesis 6. Genesis 6 records how Noah was seen by God as the righteous man. Noah was spared from the flood because he walked with God. He was this figurehead in Israelite history who was a, a great of their faith. Ezekiel knows Job because of this other ancient text that has been preserved over time. And the book of Job identifies Job as being blameless and upright, as one who feared God and turned away from evil. And then in this text that Ezekiel's writing, he's observing Daniel from a distance, not because Daniel is coming to him as this ancient text that is being written, but Daniel's literally walking amongst Babylon as Ezekiel is observing. I find this fascinating that as Ezekiel's going about these crazy antics, there goes Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar walking by. And he sees Daniel as an upright individual. He sees Daniel as this incredible human being that's just changing the world one king at a time with grace and with love and with compassion. Ezekiel holds these three men at the same standard, at the same height of this righteousness. And he says, we can learn from one of these guys. We can learn from each of these guys, two of the past and one of the current. But what's funny about all of this is Ezekiel, he's got to know in his own heart too that these three men that are being compared together, that he's saying, we can learn from these three guys, that these three guys, they're also sinful. And we know that because they're human, because, well, they're just like you and I, made in the image of God, but fallen broken. In my life group that we were part of, my wife and I, we were discussing this, uh, Daniel in the lion's den a few weeks ago. And it came, a, came to a point where, as we're looking at this text, we were looking at it and like, wow, this, this context of Daniel, they're painting Daniel in a pretty good light. Daniel's not been shown fallen at any point. He's lived this pretty perfect life. But, but we talked about how, well, Daniel is human. He has got to have fallen at some point. Like the Bible records uh, ministry great after faithful great after faithful great of fallen individuals. 
we have uh, knowledge of Noah, these three guys that uh, Ezekiel talks about. Noah, after the flood, he got drunk and he lie fully exposed in this tent and his three boys came in and were like, whoa, and his family was shamed as a result of those actions. We know about Job and how he, while being tested of the Lord, he was filled with all of this pride and all this vanity because he himself knew that the Lord looked highly upon me and he expressed that. And so Daniel, while living this upright life, in some way, shape, or form, he failed God. He failed in some fashion. Now, we don't know necessarily what he failed in because it doesn't overtly say it. It kind of speaks quietly in that direction. But what we do know is that he recognizes that he plays a part. Just because he's a fallen individual along with all the other Israelites, they've failed God in some capacity. Perhaps he's realized that he too has had this unrepentant heart. And so he opens up this confessional part of the prayer by including himself within the same prayer, within the same confession, within the same brokenness. Look at all the plurality he uses in this text that we just look at in verses four through seven. He says, we have sinned. We have not listened. He speaks of our kings, our princes, our fathers, who all had a chance to hear these messages. To all people, this is written. But to us is open shame. I'm a part of the story. I deserve the judgment too, we hear him saying. And so Daniel confesses to the Lord on behalf of the nation that they've collectively messed up. And he includes himself. And he doesn't go pointing fingers. Remember that first story where the, all those men were at the, the table getting all the meat from the King Nebuchadnezzar? And he says, oh, no, just give me the veggies. He doesn't go pointing out, hey, but all, all those other guys, they were eating meat. Get them in trouble. He doesn't go pointing out all those other guys at the foot of the statue, as it was Daniel chapter 2 or 3, where the statue's set up by Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't go pointing out, hey, what about all those 9,990 other seven people that bowed down at the foot of the statue? What about them? They weren't supposed to do that, but they did. I didn't. That's not what he does here. He says, I'm a part of the problem. He doesn't point out how fallen everyone else is. Now, we've all been talking about how uh, we're to read the Bible with a mirror instead of binoculars. Daniel here in the very point, as he's read Jeremiah, he's seen himself. He sees himself as part of the problem, and he doesn't project it all on everyone else. That's everyone else's problem. But he projects it upon himself. He acknowledges his part and responsibility within God's covenant to obey, and he's seen that he's been a part of that same negligence. So earlier I said there's something else that Daniel knows. Something else is going on in his mind as this light bulb goes off when it comes to the need for confession. To put it another way, I, I believe Daniel discovered that the road to restoration was only going to be made available through repentance. The road to restoration was only going to be made available to this nation was through repentance. That the only way that this nation was ever going to return home, the only way that they would get the ability to build their temple again, to restore their city, or to gain their independence once again, was if they could confess their sins to the Lord. They needed to take a serious look at their priorities. They've bumped God down, the far down their list. They've elevated themselves. They put themselves on a pedestal. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah, both these contemporaries of Daniel, they're both telling them, you guys have messed up. You've forgotten the main thing, and you're going all in the wrong directions. They both tell us that the temple that they were worshiping within in Jerusalem was defiled. 
They're, they were bringing in all of these other idols and other these ways of worship into the very temple that said that God said, this is my place. This is my home. You are to not defile it. And yet these, this nation, they went and they worshiped other idols. They did horrendous other acts of what they called worship within the same place. And again, the scripture, the way it woves it all together, weaves all together, it just fascinates me. Because God saw their hearts, he saw their actions, and he saw their words not line up with his commands. So in Jeremiah 21, God tells them these words. And this, this, is, this is rather scary. Um, this one doesn't sit well with me as I read this one. Jeremiah 21. God says, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath. I will strike down the inhabitants of the city, speaking of Jerusalem, both man and beast. They shall die a great pestilence. Afterwards, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his servants, and all the people in the city to, who survive to the pestilence, to the sword, to famine, and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies. And God has seen all of this play out. He's seen this happen all within this great city of Jerusalem. And he's, he's saddened, he's despondent, he's so, so disappointed in how this people have lived so, so wrong. But what Ezekiel wrote about, wrote about in his book is happening all at the same time. Ezekiel writes in chapter 10 that God left the temple. God left the temple in this crazy, crazy dream that Ezekiel has, he sees this uh, godlike being go on this big, huge, uh, I want to say chariot slash throne that rises and leaves the temple. And it was signifying that God left the temple. He was so upset with their worship, with what they were doing within that place, he says, I'm done. But as this nation of Israel was brought off to Babylon, yes, God left the temple. But God didn't go for a vacation in Hawaii. God didn't go pack his golf clubs and go play a few games down at the street, uh, at the course down the road. God didn't get on his bike and go for a big long bike ride just to avoid life for a little while. God tells us in Ezekiel 11, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them from far off among the nations, and though I scattered them amongst the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. I was with them where I sent them. I took them off. I scattered them abroad. I just didn't leave them hanging. I went with them. I was with Daniel in Babylon. I was with the three friends in Babylon. I was with Ezekiel in Babylon. I was with them wherever they were, 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 were held. Scroll too far. But as God enacted his judgment, he remains committed to be their God. He didn't go back uh, on his plan that they would be his people. To his people, they were still his people. Even though they've repeatedly, repeatedly turned their backs upon him. So I'm curious, as, even as I was writing this earlier this week, I was like, wow, who of us? Who of us in our minds, in our actions, in our life, way that we live life could ever match the same? Who of us are always loving? 
Who of us are always filled with grace? Who of us are always pursuing the other in our lives no matter where they are? And I think in a room like this and online, we would have a, a pretty hard time finding anyone able to raise their hand saying, yeah, that's me. You see, Daniel, as he's writing this prayer, as his heart is breaking for his nation, and as I feel like we're being challenged today, is that Daniel's taking great strides to point out that God is great and that we are not. Daniel's seeing the effects of the covenant being broken, and he's recognizing that as a result of all of those things, yes, there will be pain, there will be misery, there will be sorrow, but in through all of that, there will still be God. God's not leaving. Even in our sin, he will always be there, which is where Daniel turns as he continues on in his prayer of the third confession. Daniel then confesses the righteousness of God. Picking up at verse 12. The prayer continues. He says, God has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, against our rulers who ruled us, for bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been anything that is like what has happened here in Jerusalem. As is written, in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of our Lord God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight from the truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works and all that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. He keeps writing about that. So in my role here as pastor of congregational care, uh, I've had a lot of conversations with many of you. Uh, in your pain, in your hardships, in your calamities, in your difficult moments. We've sat in your living rooms. We've sat in the hospital rooms. We've talked on the phone at length. And there's a theme I hear in almost every conversation. And if you know it, I'm going to invite you to say it. It's up on the screen. Say it with me. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. I almost hear this in almost every phone call I make. And it always humbles me with the people I talk with, many of you who have faith that has been longer than the years that I've lived, that we can still testify to the fact that God is good all the time, that all the time, God is good. In our hardships, in our difficulties, in our calamities, these are tough words to put into voice, aren't they? You get a cancer diagnosis. Can you really, truly say this? The flood. This is a hard one to say. Life in general and its difficulties. This is a hard one to announce. And I'm not saying that it is the Lord who has caused these things to happen in our lives. That's not where I'm going here. But sometimes I feel like we remain within these calamities, that we remain within these hardships and these difficulties for a purpose. And I'd love to be able to tell you here this morning, the purpose is this. But everyone has a different story. Everyone has a different road that they're traveling on. But oftentimes we don't know what that purpose is of our calamities and of our difficulties is, is growing. Sorry, I'm reading this wrong. We don't know what those purposes beyond growing in our understanding that God is in fact good in all he does. 
So Daniel here, he commends the Lord God for staying true to his word. We looked earlier at Daniel, sorry, at Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, where God told his people that if they were to continue on in disobedience, there will be punishment. Could God have given them another chance? As he was looking at their antics there in the temple, could God have said, yeah, I'll give them another hundred years? As he was preparing them to be overtaken by the Babylonians, could God have said, yeah, maybe, maybe I, I can give them another chance? I, I, you know, I, I'm not God, and I'm not omnipotent. I don't know all those things. I don't know all the ways of his, his thoughts. So maybe. But what would that have taught the Israelites, if he kept on giving them chances after chances after chances after chances, what would that have taught them? What would that have taught the Babylonians around and all the other nations around? Put it this way. God is a God who keeps his word and will follow through with whatever he has promised, both blessings and curses. God is a God who keeps his word and will follow through with all that he has promised. So I, I grew in my understanding of God's firmness a number of years ago, and I put this in my mind earlier this week as I was thinking about this. God is a firm God, and he needs to be a firm God because we are sheepish people. So Pam and I lived in a condo on the other side of town uh, a number of years ago, and above us lived another gentleman. Uh, he was a single guy, and most often on the weekends when the uh, pubs and bars would close, he would take his friends all home with him, and they would party it up from 1 a.m. to about 4 or 5 in the morning, almost every Friday and Saturday night. This is in a condo building. This was not a cool thing. We didn't love and did not enamor. We're not enamored by this. Well, season after, week after week would pass by, and they would, all this party would be going on upstairs, and we would do what we could. Uh, there was even one time it was snowing outside. I started grabbing snowballs at like 2 or 3 in the morning, throwing them at the window, so just to get their attention. And sure enough, got their attention. They turned the music down, went back inside. But by the time I was laying back down in bed, the party had restarted. This is how it went. The odd time I'd even bump into this guy in the hallway. I'd be like, dude, you can't do this. This is a condo building. This doesn't work this way. And he would say sorry, and I'd be like, hey, good, you're sorry. We go on a merry way. But by the time next Friday came, same party. Pubs would close, his would open. This is what happened for I don't know how long. Um, it, but drove us nuts. But one morning, it was Saturday morning or Sunday morning, I can't remember which, it was a warmer morning, and I went outside to, after a really tough night's sleep, and I opened up the door to go outside, stretch in the warm, early air. And my patio was just strewn with garbage. Just garbage on top of garbage. I'm not even going to tell you what kind of garbage, because it was just garbage. Well, me and my fatherly wisdom, because my oldest daughter was, I think, just a couple months old at that point, or just starting to walk, and I was like, no, this isn't, this isn't how this needs to work. This cannot go this way. I stormed upstairs, knew it was early, knew his party went late, and I just pounded on the guy's door. Like, dude, you can't do this. Clean up the mess now. He went, went downstairs, cleaned up the mess. I didn't see him for the rest of the day, because other reasons. Saw him in the parking lot the next day. And uh, he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, Adam. I'm so sorry. I replied to him with much grace as I could muster. Your apologies are empty. You haven't changed. The thing with apologies, the thing with being sorry is that it means that we change. It means that we go and live a different direction. It means that we alter our ways. We do life differently when we are truly apologetic. 
It's like, that wasn't you, man. So the next time I hear you up there at 1 a.m., I'm just going to not pause. I'm just going to call the cops. I'm just going to. It's just the way it's going to be. And I knew the guy had a record. And I knew he would take that a little bit more seriously. So the neat part is that he did take it seriously. And I didn't see him for, I think, years following. We didn't hear any more parties upstairs for a long time afterwards. It was years later, and I bumped into him some other place. It was a parking lot or a store. I, don't, I can't remember which. But he recognized me, and I recognized him. We got chatting. Turns out he was uh, beginning to sort out life now. He was getting back together with his ex-wife. He was restoring a relationship with a child of his that he had lost. He finally started taking to heart the consequences of his actions, which I was really glad to hear. But that day, I feel like I got a sense of the Lord's heart for his people. He so badly wants us to be his beloved children, to be the followers of his words, and to be recipients of his grace. But he also knows and recognizes that we're sinful human beings. We don't always go about the patterns. We don't always go about the things that we should be doing. So God has to be firm. There's a point in our lives where he does have to lay down the law. He does have to say, I need you to know this. And if he didn't, if he doesn't, we'll just keep wandering farther and farther and farther away, just like the Israelites were on track for. If he didn't call them to attention in this, all this defilement of the temple, they were just going to go defile themselves more in more places, in more areas. They were just going to walk farther and farther away from the Lord. So Daniel then works to start concluding his prayer. Verse 19, Daniel, Daniel prays, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act and delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because of your city and of your people that are called by your name. And as he's praying these words, something incredible happens. The angel Gabriel shows up. We're going to come back to the angel showing up here in just a moment. But before we do that, this prayer, these confessions that he's made, that we're exploring, what do they prompt us to do? What is, what is our action plan? What is, what is, how are we to respond as we go into this coming week, thinking about Daniel's prayer and these confessions? Number one, we need to plead the promises of Scripture. We need to stand on the promises of Scripture, pleading with the Lord, Lord, answer the promises and act with the promises that you've made. Daniel had a few difficult moments as he tried to make sense of these visions. As we noted, he first turned to Scripture, turned quickly to prayer, and he prayed to the Lord that he would follow through with the promises that he's made. He said, God, you've only, you said we'd be here 70 years. We're at year 65, 66. Lord, follow through with your promises. May that be just the case so we can all return home. If you want to do a really fun activity, I did it this week. Type into Google, what are the promises of God in Scripture? You are going to be blessed as you do that. Here are four of the many on top of many that I found. Lean into prayer as you pray this week, when you pray for the promises of God to be enacted in your life. Ephesians 3 says that he will strengthen us through the Holy Spirit. So we pray, Lord, you've promised the Holy Spirit Lord, may I receive it. May I fill it. May I be a recipient of it. May I go forward today in it. Matthew 11 says that he will grant us all this rest. We are a tired group of people. Our lives are chocked full with so many things. Christmas season's coming. It's going to get worse. God says he will grant us the rest 
Philippians 4. He will take care of all of our needs. Joshua 1 says, he will be with us, with us wherever we go. Pray those words, friends. Lean into the promises of Scripture. As God says, I will be these things. I will do these things. Pray that you will receive them. Pray that you will have the heart to feel them. Pray that you will have the hands and feet to follow through with them. Number two, we need to posture ourselves with passion. Daniel took on the posture of earnestness. He took on the posture of this passion and the zeal in his prayer as he was so worried and so concerned for his friends, the Israelites. And he prayed before the Lord. He grieved with the nation that he loved so dearly. They were in trouble and they were experiencing so much, so much difficulty. So he pleads with the Lord, answer our prayers, O God. There's a fascinating answer to prayer in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 tells of, of uh, the apostle Peter who was in prison for doing the work of ministry. And there Peter is in prison and the, the, the church is acting. 12 verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the earnest, the passionate prayers, the prayers full of zeal were for him were made to God by the church. But the earnest prayers were prayed for him. And in only a way that God could ordain the, the prayers were answered. The chains fell off Peter's wrist and the gates of the prison opened in front of him as an angel ushered Peter into the freedom world. As you pray, do your best not just to rattle off your habitual dinner and bedtime prayers. Those are great. Don't stop those. That's not what I'm saying. But pray with a passion and a trust that Daniel had. Pray with a, a passion and a trust that this church did for Peter. They trusted that the Lord would free him, and they did. Number three, we need to be bold in asking the Lord to act while also looking for his answer. We need to be bold in asking the Lord to act while also looking for his answer. So this ne next passage I'm going to share with you, um, it came to me a bit of a, as a surprise, as I'm pretty sure I've read it before, but it's never struck me in the way that it did uh, this past week. Isaiah writes this. Isaiah 30, verse 19. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem, and you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sounds of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. You catch that? As soon as you say your cry, your prayer, your voice is heard by the Lord, he hears you, but not only does he just hear you, he answers you. He's got an answer already on the lips of his mouth as he hears the prayers that you pray. Just want to reiterate that point. Psalm 139 verse 4 says, even, a word is, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So while God has his answers lined up in the moment we bring him a request, his answer is immediate. That's what scripture tells us. He knows He's got a plan. His action might take a few days. It might take a few weeks. It might take a few years. And Daniel's thing here, their, their story, their, this, this freedom, the return back to Israel, that was a few years away yet. It might even take a few generations. 
We, we could talk through uh, a whole variety of people. Uh, Moses uh, waited a generation before he got into service. Uh, Joshua waited another generation before he got his answer. Uh, these Jewish leaders and priests, they were praying for the Lord's activity, his presence to be felt in real ways. And that took generation on top of generation on top of generation before they saw their answer. Okay, we could talk about that for a little bit longer, but we're not going to. We're going to jump to Daniel chapter 9 and how it closes. I'm going to ask for your patience as I try to fumble my way through reading this one. Daniel chapter 9 closes in a typical complex way that Daniel chapter 7 and 8 were written. So bear with me. There's a lot going on, and we could talk for a long time, but we're not going to. So Gabriel has just appeared to Daniel. He said, Jesus loves you. God loves you. That's why I'm here. I want to be a part of the answer. I want to show you the way. Verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that the going out of the, from the going out of the word to restore and to build the, the Jerusalem, so that's where God says, okay, now go and build and, and go. Uh, from the time that that word goes out to the time frame of a prince, the anointed one, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built, and again with squares and with a moat, but in a troubled time. It's going to be a strong place, it's going to be a stronghold, uh, but it's not going to be an easy time. Then at uh, 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with one for a week. And for half of that week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abominations that come is one who makes things desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Like I said, we can sit here for another hour or two and unpack what all that means. But we're going to do a little surface level thing here. So Gabriel is the angel of the Lord who has already appeared to Daniel once before in Daniel chapter 8, but appears again to two other individuals 500 years from now, and that's all what this is leading towards. He speaks to Zechariah the priest in Luke chapter 1. He tells Zechariah that they're going to have a son. It's going to be John the Baptist. He's going to be the final Old Testament prophet to announce the coming of who? Jesus Christ. Gabriel appears a little later on to none other than Mary, the very mother of Jesus telling her that she's going to be the savior, sorry, that she's going to be the mother of the savior of the nations of the world. And so speaking of an answer, looking for an answer to a bold prayer, all Daniel was praying for was being able to return back home to their, to their lands, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild their lives, to rebuild their city. Gabriel told them that, yeah, that's going to happen. They'd go back home, but once there, in just the right amount of time, that's what all the numbers mean, in just the right amount of time, the anointed one would arrive. It would be the person of Jesus Christ. He would be the one to fulfill all the righteousness of God, the one to fulfill, to finish off all the transgression, the one who will bring about an end to all sin, the one to bring about the end of these transgressions, the one to bring about all kinds of peace, everlasting righteousness, to be the fulfillment of all the prophets, to bring peace and anointing in the most holy of places. Friends, we're to be bold in our asks. 
We're to be bold in our requests that we make to God the Father because the Lord can be so much bolder in his answers. Again, Daniel just prays to be, for his family to go home and God answers, yeah, in 500 years, you're gonna get Jesus Christ. You're gonna get the anointed one because the Lord can be so much bolder in his answers. Gabriel goes on to say that the anointed one would be cut off, that he shall die a sacrificial death and we shall be seen that the death in Christ means forgiveness for us. That's a pretty amazing answer to Daniel's prayer, if you ask me. You've been listening to the latest sermon in our current Daniel series, Thriving in Babylon. You can find resources and information about this teaching series and more information about our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.